Hello there, and welcome back to the Paradox Podcast. Or welcome for the first time. I'm not really sure who it is that's listening on the other side of this. But whoever it is, thanks for being here. <laughs> Anyways, we're rolling through the book of Deuteronomy, and today's teaching looks at chapter 6 and is entitled, The Unity of Deuteronomy. Before we read from scripture today, I would like to ask you a question. What is the purpose of prayer? I mean, when we ask God to help our loved ones as they battle illness, doesn't God already know that they are sick? When we ask God to help us get into the university of our dreams, does that mean that God changes the admissions process at that specific university and takes away a spot from someone who didn't pray? When we teach our kids to pray to Jesus in the evening, what exactly are we hoping they will gain from this experience? Most Christians I know consciously or subconsciously believe that the spiritual practice of prayer exists to change the mind of God. But if God is truly all-loving, all-knowing, and all-powerful, then should we really be trying to change God's mind at all? Do you and I really believe that we can see things better from our finite perspective than God can see from her infinite perspective? What is the purpose of prayer? I want you to have that question in the background as we go through today's sermon, because we are going to look at one of the oldest prayers in all of scripture. And when I study this prayer in 2021, I am struck by the stark contrast between the deep tradition of this prayer and the way that Christians practice prayer today. This ancient prayer is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now, in the first part of our series in Deuteronomy, we discussed how this book contains a three-and-a-half-hour-long sermon attributed to Moses. In this writing, Moses stands at the foot of a mountain in the wilderness and delivers a homiletical behemoth to the masses, of the children of Israel. This sermon takes place right before two liminal moments in Israel's history. The first liminal moment is the impending death of Moses. Now we can imagine that the Israelites held an abundance of anxiety as they wondered what life would be like after Moses passed away because he had led their people for decades. The second liminal moment was the long-awaited entry into God's promised land of Cana. When Moses gave this sermon, the overwhelming majority of Israelites had only ever known life in the desert. However, they all could sense that they are about to settle down in the very near future. So on the doorstep of these major changes, Moses preaches the words of Deuteronomy. In the first four chapters of this book, Moses tells the children of Israel that they must not worship idols. Then in chapter 5, Moses recites the Ten Commandments. And after the Ten Commandments, he says these words. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You must love the Lord your God with your whole mind, your whole being, and all your strength. Now, I don't know how you feel about these words that I just read to you. They may be thrilling to you, or they may be mundane to you. But for Moses, 
these words are anything but trivial. Rather, these words are the point. In the very next verse, he says, Keep these words that I am commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children and talk about them when you are at home and when you are away, when you lie down and when you rise. Now, did you catch what's going on here? Moses, who is just about to die, wants the words he just spoke to constantly be on the mind of the Israelites everywhere they go. In the morning when they wake up, and in the evening before they fall asleep. And because Moses gave this command, the children of Israel took it seriously. They recited, they chanted, they sang, and they prayed Moses' words in Deuteronomy 6.4 every morning and every evening. Twice a day. This prayer passed from generation to generation to generation, and if you stroll into a daily service at a Jewish synagogue today, in the morning or in the evening, then you will almost certainly hear the words of Deuteronomy 6.4, the words of Moses being sung or chanted or recited from the lips of Jews who are in attendance. This passage of scripture is known as the Shema. And I have heard multiple rabbis refer to the Shema as the most important prayer in all of Judaism. The Shema is recited twice a day, every day. And the Shema is what brings the Yom Kippur service to a close every year. And while I could tell you about what I think the Shema means from a Christian perspective, I thought it would be more valuable to speak to someone who lived with the Shema firsthand. A few years ago, I had the privilege of officiating my cousin Mark and Julia's wedding. Julia is Jewish, and at that wedding I met her father, Dr. Aaron Vittles. Dr. Vittles was born and raised in Israel, and he immigrated with his family to the U.S. He currently serves as a cantor for Congregation Shari Torah in Portland, Oregon. He has recited the Shema thousands of times during his life. This past week, Julia assured me that he would be happy to talk to me about the Shema. So I called him and I asked him, Dr. Vittles, after spending your life with the Shema, what does the Shema mean to you? He took a deep breath and said, the Shema can be understood in a number of ways. For me personally, I'm more inclined to see and understand the Shema from a mystical perspective. He continued, everything in the prayer is seen to raise and uplift one's soul toward God. The Shema, in my view, is in one short verse, the whole spiritual path. The whole spiritual path. Here's a man who's walked through the very short verse of Deuteronomy 6.4 thousands of times. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God and the Lord is one. That's only 12 words long. And yet Dr. Vittles says, that's it. That's the whole spiritual journey. To explain this rationale, Dr. Vittles zeroes in on the first word, which is translated as the word hear in the New English Translation. 
This translation is rooted in the Hebrew word Shema, which also gives this passage its name. Now take a moment and remember the context of these words. I find it a bit strange that Moses, who, may I remind you, is in the middle of a sermon, feels that he needs to tell people to listen. I imagine the Israelites looking around at each other and thinking, you want us to listen, Moses? What do you think we've been doing? We've been listening to you for 35 minutes at this point. Maybe if your sermon was a bit shorter, Moses, then you wouldn't need to tell all of us to listen. Why is Moses telling the people who are listening to him that they need to listen to him? A few years ago, the Hayton family gave a book to my son, Bodhi. This book would become my favorite children's book, and it's entitled The Boy Who Spoke to Earth. In this book, the boy speaks to the earth and wants to know where he can find happiness. The earth speaks back to the boy and tells him to go to the ocean and then over to the cliffs, around to the forest, down to the desert, up to the mountains, and then to the very top of the world. After completing this extensive expedition, the boy cries out in frustration to the earth, I've traveled so far and I've seen so much, but I still haven't found happiness. And after his words echo and gradually dissolve, the earth speaks back. My boy, did you look without seeing? The first time I read this story, I put the book down and said to my infant son, Bodhi, can I get an amen? The reason why I was so moved by this story is because it perfectly adapted a prevalent biblical concept. The prophets Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Ezekiel all encountered religious people who completely missed the point of their religion. These religious folks were more concerned with their religious rituals than they were with caring for the poor. So all three prophets described these religious practitioners as people who had eyes but could not see and who had ears but could not hear. This prophetic tradition made a profound impact on Jesus Christ. And when he taught people about God, Jesus frequently used symbolic parables. Eventually, his disciples asked him why he didn't just speak plainly to people. Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew, For this reason I speak to them in parables. Although they see, they do not see. And although they hear, they do not hear. Nor do they understand. In other words, Jesus told parables to move people from passively accepting religious rituals to actively thinking about why they believe what they believe and inviting them to change. Notice that in my favorite children's book, the spiritual journey of the boy did not begin on his journey. Instead, his spiritual journey began when he started to focus on what was right in front of him. Which brings us back to the Shema. Moses, in the middle of a sermon, told the listening Israelites that they need to listen. Dr. Vittles describes it this way. He says, it starts with listen, which means focus on God. This is the beginning of the spiritual path. In other words, 
The Shema begins with the assumption that human beings do not pay attention to what is right in front of them. The Shema begins with the assumption that human beings are distracted. Now, this is really something to me because human beings tend to think of themselves as increasingly distracted because of the developing technology of our cell phones. I don't know about you, but I often think about how aware and focused I would be if I didn't have to deal with my cell phone all the time. But there weren't any cell phones during the day and age of Moses. Human beings were distracted and disengaged back then, just like human beings are distracted and disengaged today. Rather than blaming the cell phone, maybe we just need to understand that paying attention, being present, embracing what is in front of us, is what human beings have been trying to do all along. There's a big, beautiful world out there filled with joy and laughter and hope and blue skies and rain puddles. But if you aren't careful, you can miss all of it. Everything is made of particles that are humming with life. But to someone who isn't paying attention, the world appears to be a lifeless rock. It's possible for us to look without seeing. It's possible for us to hear without listening. And into our distracted human experience, the Shema bursts in and says, look at all of this. See, taste, touch, smell, listen. It's all here. It's all a gift. A few years ago, I moved from Redlands, California to Bozeman, Montana to teach videography to some high school students. I heard that Montana was beautiful, but when I got there, Montana took my breath away. Everywhere I looked, mountains dramatically jutted into the expansive sky. I felt like I was living in a calendar. A few days later, I walked into my first day of class as a teacher, and I showed kids my pictures from traveling the world to teach them the basic rules of photographic and video composition. After I finished showing them these pictures, one of the high school students said, we can never take pictures like that. We just live in boring old Montana. Boring old Montana? I couldn't believe this kid. What an entitled little brat. I don't even remember what I said to him in response. I just remember being appalled by this kid for being ignorant to the overwhelming beauty that was around him. Well, fast forward five years after that story occurred. I graduated from Montana State University and moved back from Bozeman, Montana to Redlands, California. A few months after moving back, my friend from Montana State University, Rob, called me. He said, Craig, I'm in California. I'd love to see you if you're free. I told Rob, I'd love to hang. Where are you? Rob asked the person who he was with where they were. Craig, he said, I'm in Oakland. I tried to stifle a laugh. Rob, I said, that's a long ways away from where I live. No, Rob said. My friend tells me that we are very close to Redlands. I thought about it for a minute, and then I said, Rob, are you in Oak Glen? Yeah, that's the place, he said. <laughs> Moments later, I met up with Rob halfway in the city of Yukaipa. We sat down at a table, 
And the first thing he said to me was, Craig, how come you never told me that California was so beautiful? I remember thinking, really? Yukaipa? Beautiful? I had never in my entire life thought of Yukaipa as a beautiful place. But then I looked around where we were sitting and I saw snow-capped peaks, dramatic mountains, and an expansive blue sky. I saw the world around me in Yukaipa with brand new eyes and I realized how unaware I was of this beautiful space. Now what's funny is in that moment, I remember immediately thinking of my conversation with that high school student back in Montana five years ago. And I realized how petty I had been, how judgmental I had been, and how much I had taken for granted the beauty around me. I was the spoiled brat. In other words, we all take for granted the beauty that is around us. We are all unaware. But the Shema invites us into greater awareness. So often I encounter Christians who feel they missed out on God because they did not live during biblical times. They wish they could have been there when God led the Israelites with a pillar of fire in the night sky. Or that they could have witnessed firsthand David slaying Goliath. Or that they just might have heard the very voice of God speaking to Saul on the road to Damascus. Christians hear all of these stories and rejoice in their triumphs. But at the same time, there is a sense of alienation as they wonder, why don't I get to experience God this way? This leads many Christians to believe that God was closer to humanity back then than God is right now. My friends, the Shema debunks this fraught idea. Instead, the Shema challenges us to listen. And if we can listen close enough, then we get to experience God in the same way as everyone else gets to experience God. Because God is as close to each of us as our next breath, no matter when we were born. The poet Walt Whitman once wrote, Why should I wish to see God better than this day? I see something of God each hour of the 24, and each moment then. In the faces of men and women, I see God, and in my own face in the glass. I find letters from God dropped in the street, and every one is signed by God's name. And I leave them where they are, for I know that others will punctually come forever and ever. Walt Whitman's poem, Walt Whitman's words show us what is possible when we listen. And it also reminds me of the recognition that is found in the second line of the Shema. Dr. Vittles explains it this way. The line, the Lord is our God, well, that's when you see and acknowledge God. After that acknowledgement of God, the next step in the spiritual journey is a direct communication with God. Dr. Vittles continues, Then you come near and say, Adonai, which means the Lord. While this is a close or an intimate statement, it maintains a sense of duality or a sense of separation between the human and the divine. 
That separation means that there is one more step on the spiritual journey, which is the last word of the Shema, Echad. While Echad is often translated as the number one, the Hebrew word means so much more. Dr. Vittles defines Echad as pure unity with God and the world. Unity. Did anyone else hear that word a lot this past week? If you did not hear the word unity a lot, then that means you skipped the inauguration of Joe Biden. President Biden said the words unity, uniting, and united a total of 14 times in his inaugural address. 14 times. But what the president did not do during his address was define what unity means, which is really the sticking point, isn't it? Because when I look at the ridiculous border wall that the last administration attempted to build and how this was the central campaign promise and most tangible achievement of a major political party from the past four years, the question I'm left with is, how on earth do I unite with people who support this? The wall is fundamentally a symbol of division. So I'm not sure we can find common ground with people who chant, build that wall, build that wall, ad nauseum for the past four years. And what's really strange to me is when I say things like, well, I'm against building walls between us and other human beings, there are several people who complain that I am working against unity by being against walls, and they call it a political statement. As activist Bree Newsom Bass once said, if telling the truth sows division, then the unity is not real. What exactly is the unity that we are striving for with the people who build walls? Because if I need to be aligned with people who believe that women should not be ordained as equals to men, then I have zero interest in participating in that unity. To talk about unity, I want to ask you a question. How do you get really rich people to all dress in the same ugly, cheap t-shirt? The answer? You sell them an expensive ticket to a basketball playoff game. Now, when you think about basketball playoff games and everyone wearing the same ugly, cheap t-shirt, most people, when we talk about the word unity, have this kind of image in their mind. A fan base coming together to make it as difficult as possible for the visiting team. People willing to dress in these ugly t-shirts to convey to the visitors that the blood runs deeper than the five guys they are facing on the court. People here in stadiums like this aren't worried whether you're a Democrat or a Republican or whether you want to tax the rich or build a wall. All people really care about in arenas like this is whether or not you can pay the entrance fee. This is what most people in America today consider to be unity. So while it is a form of unity, I want to be very clear. This is a specific kind of unity. This is tribal unity. And tribal unity has some very strict and very short limits. With tribal unity, everyone in the Bay Area was united for their love of Kevin Durant until he put on a Nets jersey and now they are united that he is the enemy. Tribal unity is a form of unity, but it's one of the lowest levels of unity out there. 
The reason for this is because tribal unity almost always requires an opponent, an enemy, or a villain. Now, what's really strange about the year 2021 is that we live with 24-hour news networks. These networks have found quite clearly that the best way to get ratings is to feed into the tribal unity of partisan politics. Right now, you can turn on a TV and tune into a, quote, news source, unquote, and hear about how your party is great and the other party is terrible. And these 24-hour not-so-news networks remind me more of sports arenas than journalism. And this, my friends, is a problem. Now, unless we turn off the 24-hour news networks, we will always find ourselves vilifying those who we disagree with politically. And speaking of vilification, so many white Americans rallied around that stupid border wall because it was a tangible validation of their desire to vilify people of Latin descent. And when we think of tribal unity, we should think of this wall. Because tribal unity requires us to find a villain and say, can we unite around our hatred for them? And that hatred is why tribal unity ends up being one of the lowest levels of unity. But let's return to basketball to discuss a deeper level of unity than tribal unity. The greatest basketball shooter ever is unquestionably Steph Curry. There are few things more thrilling to watch in sports than Steph heating up. And when Steph is hot, he'll celebrate with his signature dance move, the shimmy. Steph's shimmy is known throughout the NBA and, unsurprisingly, it annoys his competition. However, during Game 5 in the Western Conference Finals in 2018, Chris Paul of the Houston Rockets buried a ridiculous three-pointer right in the face of Steph Curry. As they were running back to the other side of the court, Chris Paul shimmied the whole way back to the other side at a very close proximity to Steph Curry. The Rockets won that game, and Steph afterward was asked if he felt disrespected by Chris Paul's shimmy. Steph responded with one of the greatest quotes in NBA history. He said, quote, if you can shimmy on someone else, you got to be all right getting shimmied on. So I'll keep shimmying, and maybe he will too, close quote. Come on, people. He is giving these quotes away for free. What Steph is alluding to here is a higher form of unity than tribal unity. I'll call this one moral unity. Moral unity is the idea that the rules that apply to me should be the same rules that apply to you, even if you are my opponent, my competitor, or my enemy. Now, we are living in a rather strange time right now. The House of Representatives is set to send articles of impeachment to the Senate for a man who is no longer president. Now, I've heard people criticize this move as petty and unnecessary. However, it is necessary in order to preserve moral unity. Our society has deemed that inciting a mob is a criminal offense. True justice requires that this law applies equally to everyone, no matter how much money they make, what political party they belong to, or how powerful they are. 
The reason it's important for our society to convict a former president for inciting a mob is so that we can preserve moral unity. So if we're really talking about unity, we have to understand the implications and what that means for us to preserve moral unity going forward. Moral unity requires that we apply the law to everyone equally. And so if we're serious about unity, then let's do that going forward, shall we? And while moral unity is a deeper level of unity than tribal unity, there is an even deeper level of unity beyond that. Let's return to the game of basketball. Whenever we think of sports, we think of winners and losers. My team and your team. Me and you. But when you think about basketball, what is it exactly that makes the game so compelling? While some may say that it's the triumphs and the victories and the celebrations, those are all results rather than the game itself. The reason basketball holds our interest is because there is the universal moment that occurs in the game. Whether you are playing in Rucker Park or watching a game at the Staples Center, that moment is the same. It's right after a player shoots the ball. Everyone's eyes turn toward the net and wonders the same thing. Is it going in? Without that question, there is no game. Earlier, I told you that Steph Curry was the greatest shooter of all time. But the fact is, he's missed more three-pointers than he's made. But let's say someone comes along that is an even better shooter than Steph. Let's call her Riley Curry. Let's say she shoots 100% from the field. She never misses a shot ever in her entire basketball career. At first, we would be intrigued. But after a year or two, I think we would stop watching. Because if every shot goes in, then what's the point of the game? We already know the outcome. Her perfect shooting would completely destroy the whole reason we play. We play basketball because there are shots that go in and there are shots that don't. The game of basketball needs shots to be made and shots to be missed in order to exist. And when we are aware of the relationship between made shots and missed shots, then we start to become aware of the deepest level of unity. This unity is called non-dual unity. Have you ever been to a funeral and cried your eyes out? Do you know why you are grieving? Nine times out of 10, you are grieving because you loved the person you lost. And the fact is, if you didn't love them, then you most likely would not be crying. But the more that we love the one that we lost, the more tragic their absence feels. When we grieve the loss of our loved ones, it reveals the non-dual unity behind our tears. Love and suffering are the same. I know that this idea is counterintuitive, but with each passing day, I have found it to be more and more true. This is why every week we have members from the community share both their lamentations and celebrations. It's because all of this, and not just some of this, is what life is. 
Some weeks we come to church feeling like we are on top of the world and other weeks we barely make it out of bed. And hopefully all of these stories from all of these faces have helped you and me to see how we are not alone in the world. We all have doubts, joys, tears, and laughter. And when we can include all that life has to throw at us, rather than just the convenient parts, well, that's where I found a community can become united. We asked a little while back, how on earth do I unite with people who support a border wall? Well, the answer to the question is, you don't. At least, not at first. First, you go to the other side of the wall that is being built. To the people who are being oppressed by the cruelty of power, and you live in their shoes. Now, this may seem like some new age radical concept, but the fact is it's in the heart of our tradition. In the book of Leviticus, God tells Moses in chapter 19 what will make Israel a holy nation, set apart from the other nations. In this chapter, God lists several things, including, quote, the alien who resides with you shall be to you as the citizen among you. You shall love the alien as yourself, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Close quote. So if we desire true non-dual unity, we go to the other side of the wall and ask ourselves a contemplative question of empathy. What is it like to be someone who is trying to immigrate to our country? Is this a fair and reasonable process? Or could we make the immigration process a more humane endeavor? Because almost all of our families immigrated to America at some point. And the moment that we recognize that we are truly the same with the people on either side of the wall is the moment that we start to live with non-dual awareness. We ask the question, what is unity? And unity empathizes with the marginalized and then boldly works toward justice. Now, if we are really serious about unity right now, then we should be prioritizing the stories of those whose society has marginalized. And after we empathize with those stories and live with them with our emotions, then we begin to work toward justice for them first. Now, at this point, if we were meeting in person, in church, I can imagine that someone might stand up and say, hey, Pastor Craig, I'm marginalized too. And after hearing that objection, I would smile and say, oh, hello, white America. Thank you for coming to church this morning. And what most people don't understand about me is that I agree that a lot of rural white America has been marginalized by our society. But the reason for that marginalization is a different narrative than what powerful people in our country would have you believe. Just last year, the Pew Research Center released findings that the wealth gap is continuing to increase at alarming rates. From 1983 to 2001, the rich and the poor both got richer at similar rates of increase. But between 2001 and 2016, the rich got richer while the middle class and the poor became poorer. This regression of wealth 
in a capitalist society is marginalization. And while several people from white America want to complain that they are marginalized because of their skin color, the fact is there is loads of research debunking that myth. Rural white America is not marginalized because they are white. They are marginalized because they are poor. Our society values rich people more than poor people. And the more we value the rich and the more we devalue the poor, the less unified we will be as a country. Unity requires us to listen to the stories of the marginalized, the poor, and exercise empathy. And once we work toward empathy, then we work toward justice. And in my opinion, justice is a diminishing wealth gap between the classes. And right now, our country is headed in the wrong direction. Unity is important going forward. But the moment that someone speaks up and says, I'm all for unity as long as those people aren't part of it, then we stop validating that voice. We go to those who are condemned, we empathize, and then we work for their justice. This is non-dual unity, and it refuses to validate white supremacy, sexism, homophobia, and hate. The Shema testifies that God is one, God is Echad, and Dr. Vittles says this, some argue that Echad in the Shema is an argument for one God versus many gods. But you can go beyond this understanding and discover that there is only one to all of reality. This pure unity is where I try to go with Shema. My friends, everything and everyone is already in unity. The question is, are we able to see it? I'd like to close by looking at the verse that follows the three opening lines of the Shema. Moses said, listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is a God. You must love the Lord your God with your whole mind, your whole being, and all your strength. Now with the unity of a God in mind, we realize that these closing words are an invitation from Moses. We are invited to look at the world that we call our home filled with beautiful people from all kinds of stories and histories, with love and hatred, with corruptions and integrities, and to recognize how much work needs to be done to make things right. But while this is a lot of work, the second verse, asking us to love God with everything that we have, is a challenge. Because it is telling us to look at all of the world, in all of its horror and glory. And as we start working toward justice, and as we start empathizing with those who have heartbreaking stories, that last verse, asking us to love God with everything we have, asks us the question, but do you love being here? Do you love working for justice? Do you love working to make things right? Because if we don't, if we resent our lives and resent the pursuit of justice, then all of this will be a miserable exercise in vanity. 
The Shema invites us to love all of this. Which brings us back to our very first question. What is the purpose of prayer? Prayer, in whatever form you pray, should always lead us to greater awareness, greater unity, and greater love. May we be people of prayer. May we be people of empathy and justice. And may we become aware of the presence of Jesus Christ in all.